Ecclesiastes chapter 9. This is fine, Joey. One second. For Ecclesiastes chapter 9, if you're uh, visiting with us today, we've been working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes over the last several months. And we're in chapter 9, so we're going to read through, starting in verse 1, through to the end of the chapter together. So, Ecclesiastes 9.1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun." Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Throughout this book, 
Uh, Solomon has been rehearsing the frustrations, the evils, and the unknowns of life under the sun. Summed up by this word, he repeats, uh, that's translated in some English Bibles at least as vanity. Vanity. It's the word, it means really vapor. Vapors. And depending on the context, exactly what he's saying within the book, it has slightly different connotation to it. And so he's talking about vanity, this vapor-like nature of life and all the difficulties and frustrations we find here as we live out our lives. But when we step back and try and put this all together, uh, we do see more than the rantings of a depressed madman or skeptic, as some people would just chalk this book up to, just pure skepticism. Rather, we have a book in God's word that is rightly placed alongside of and with wisdom literature. It is here, ultimately, to make us wise, not just to leave us feeling depressed about the vanities of life, but ultimately to make us wise. And so, as we've gone, we've sought to glean wisdom from this book, including even the, most, the darkest statements that we find within it. And we've seen, of course, many dark things said and difficult truths. This book forces us to deal with life under the sun as it truly is and not create some sort of superficial understanding of things that refuses to look at the dark side, at the difficulties. And even as we continue towards the conclusion of the book, we've noted here already that the tone does start to change a little bit and more positive statements of wisdom and so on are are being said. Uh, But there are still hard and difficult statements intertwined with these more positive uh, affirmations of wisdom. And certainly this is true as we examine chapter 9. And so as we go through this chapter This afternoon, I want us to just look at four wise lessons for life under the sun. There's nothing terribly clever about that outline, but uh, but it's four wise lessons um, for life under the sun. Uh, I'm I'm amazed at just how accurate and true to life the book of Ecclesiastes is. Really, the, the whole of Scripture, how it just so accurately describes the world in which we live. Ecclesiastes in particular, the frustrating, vapor-like nature of life. And this has been on display in all kinds of ways. It it always has been, true in the time of Solomon, all the way up till today and before that, since the fall. But it's been on display in all kinds of extra ways, it would seem, recently. Uh, Certainly, never in my lifetime, it's not all that long, but... Never in my lifetime has the uncertainty of so much been so apparent. Even, it seems with every passing week, uh, there's further difficulties. Uh, We run into the usual types of pains and difficulties and illness and sickness and trial. And just the way the world's going, just even greater and greater frustration being forced upon us in an even more uncertain future. And so I want us to, with all of that as background, look at these four important lessons for life under the sun in all of its vanity. Uh, The first lesson we see is that your circumstances do not clearly reveal God's disposition toward you. 
Your circumstances do not clearly reveal God's disposition towards you. We see this in the first three verses. Uh, It's very common for people to look to their circumstances to try to determine whether or not God is pleased with them. Is God for me or against me? Well, let's examine how things are working out in my life. And the first few verses here, I think, reveal the folly of this. And it's not the first time Solomon has done this in Ecclesiastes, but here it is again. He says in verse 1, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. So Solomon begins by stating that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. Now, if you're familiar with Scripture, uh, then you know that for those who are trusting in the Lord, for those of faith, especially in light of what the New Testament very clearly says and the coming of Christ and all that he has purchased on the cross, then you know that being in the hand of God ought to be a very comforting reality if you're trusting in him. We want to be there. In fact, you think of John 10. Jesus says that no one can snatch his sheep out of his hand. And in verse 28, no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He's speaking of the assurance, the confidence that those who trust in Christ ought to have that you're secure in him. But Solomon here says something rather different. He says, whether it is love or hate, that is being in the hand of God, whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. Whether you're in God's hand to be cared for or whether you're in God's hand to be crushed is ultimately unknown, he's saying. So we've seen, obviously, to be, uh, Jesus talks about being secured in the hand of God. The Bible also says in Hebrews 10.31 that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. So depending, it could be good and it could be really bad. So we might think, well, how can this be? Uh, is this just contradictory? Is, is Solomon saying something other than what Jesus is saying? Um, you know, does this contradict having assurance of one's salvation, the confidence that Jesus himself points us to? Is Solomon against assurance? Well, the answer is that Solomon is coming at this uh, from a particular perspective. He's examining this matter in light of events that occur in a person's life. If we're just looking at events that someone faces. So consider verse 2. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. To the good and the evil. To the clean and the unclean. To him who sacrifices. To him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is. So is the sinner. And he who swears. Talking about an oath. Is as he who shuns an oath. So the same event that happens to everyone. Is in all likelihood referring to death. Uh, we saw the same wording, this use of the same event happening to the good and the bad alike uh, back in chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. And we saw there very clearly that this was referring to death. And so Solomon is saying again that death ultimately comes to everybody. Regardless of what kind of life you have lived, you will one day die. And if you remember, even just back into chapter 8 last week, in verse 14, he has told us that often... The righteous get what the wicked seem to deserve, and the wicked people of the earth often get what the righteous would deserve. 
So your days are in the hands of God, ultimately, who is sovereign. And yet, if we examine this from our circumstances, particularly as we consider death itself, we cannot ascertain purely in this way whether God was pleased with us or not. Again, as he has said, often the wicked get what the righteous deserve and vice versa. So if we're just looking at the way it all turns out under the sun, we won't know whether God was happy, ultimately approved of that person or us or not. There isn't consistently a direct correlation between prosperity and righteousness or suffering and evil. It is often all completely messed up and backwards. And Solomon continues, the beginning of verse 3, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. He calls this an evil thing. He's not charging God with being morally corrupt in the way that he governs the universe, but it is acknowledgement that ultimately final justice is not something that we see on this earth right now. And this is acknowledging this is not ultimately a good thing. This is a consequence of the fall, a consequence of sin. It is evil when we see the wicked prosper and a righteous person die and suffer. We can say that's evil because there is such a thing as righteousness and wickedness. These things do matter. And so it's not right when we see this play out this way. So from an earthbound perspective... You can't know whether God is for you or against you simply on the basis of whether or not things go well with you. I think this kind of thinking is a very real temptation. There was a temptation in Job's day. His friends all thought this way. It's a temptation today, including for Christians, to base whether or not God loves us on whether everything works out well for us according to however we define working out well. It is a form of pragmatism. Things are going well, God must approve. There's a temptation to think that if the world approves of us and thinks well of us, then we're doing what is right. On the other hand, it's also possible, knowing that persecution comes to the righteous, We might assume that every time someone gets mad at us, it's because we're obviously always acting righteously. Of course, Peter, in 1 Peter, does have a category of righteous people suffering for sin. Sometimes righteous people do sinful things, and that's why you're suffering. So this can work on both ways. Uh, There's temptation in churches to assume that church growth is an automatic sign of God's favor. and Rather, a small number... Or opposition is a sign of God's anger. But if it's that straightforward, what would we make of the rise of paganism? The return of paganism. The rise of cults. Truth is not tied to popularity. So there's all kinds of ways to assume that circumstances dictate how God feels about us or whether he's happy or displeased. Again, there's temptation to assume that disease or hardship is a sign of cursing. 
God must hate me because of all these things happening to me. But you cannot gauge God's approval or disapproval based purely on your circumstances. Now Solomon doesn't say it here, but the answer to this is that we must determine our standing with God on the basis of revelation. Not our circumstances, not how we feel about something, but on revelation, on the scriptures. We determine whether God is pleased with something or someone or displeased with something or someone based on what he says and has laid out for us in his word. And when we come to his word, we find that one standing with him is based on whether or not one is trusting in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Whether one is clothed in the righteousness of Christ or not. And to those who are, who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, to them is the promise that nobody can snatch you out of God's hand. That all things, as we read earlier, must work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That you can cling to that even when circumstances are bad. When circumstances tempt you to think God must be furious with you. We therefore interpret trial and hardship for those in Christ as God's loving, disciplining hand, as Hebrews makes clear. It's his way of refining his children. That's very different than God is angry and he's simply there to judge you. Even death itself, though an enemy for the Christian, is really just the last river we must cross before we reach the promised land. And even if that comes at a young age, in a tragic manner, it is not a sign that God is against you if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the truth of God's word is a more sure foundation than your circumstances. God's word actually interprets those circumstances for you. One day all things will be made right. The Lord's people will be vindicated, but until then, we live in and we operate in the world that Ecclesiastes is explaining to us. And so how important it is as you live your life under the sun to not gauge God's disposition toward you based on circumstances. That's the first lesson. The second lesson from wisdom here for life under the sun is you must come to terms with death and be prepared for it. You must come to terms with death and be prepared for it. We've noted that nobody seemingly in this world right now wants to acknowledge the possibility of death. But the Bible does not hold back. This idea of acknowledging death and being prepared for it, this is not a new concept in Ecclesiastes. It's all over it. It's reiterated all throughout And it's clear here again, if you look at the second half of verse 3, also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. So once again, Solomon is reminding us of the sinful condition of mankind, that the wages of sin is death, 
Yet, he acknowledges that being alive is certainly better than being dead. And he illustrates this with a proverb about a living dog being better than a dead lion. A lion, it is generally agreed, I think across most cultures, is a rather noble and majestic animal. A beast to tremble before and be in awe of in many ways. Uh, Whereas a dog, particularly in biblical times, was viewed more, uh, as one commentator says, as a a contemptible scavenger. Uh, More like we might even view a, a rat or something like that. But these difference between this scavenger animal and this noble lion, these differences notwithstanding, the living dog, Solomon says, is obviously better off than the dead lion, precisely because the dog is actually breathing and living. And so Solomon, even as he's considering death here, he's not totally given over to despair altogether, despite what he's saying. And he explains himself further in verse 5. It's better for the li- be living than dead. He says, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So Solomon says here that the reason the living have hope is that they know they will die, which Seems a little bit odd, I think, at first. How is it that knowing I'm going to die uh, breeds hope? Well, the point seems to be that the living may yet come to grips with the fact that they will one day die and therefore prepare themselves for it and start living in light of it, rightly, wisely, in the fear of the Lord. We've said this before. We've seen this in Ecclesiastes. If you remember back to chapter 7 and verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, namely death, and the living will lay it to heart. The hope is that those alive will reckon with the fact that death is coming. The scriptures are clear that death is the consequence of sin. And that after death comes a judgment. And the only way to be truly ready for it is to flee to Christ Jesus for refuge from God's wrath and judgment for your sin. Jesus has died. He has risen from the dead that all who repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will be forgiven and granted eternal life. Justified. Right with God. Death is overcome. So over those who are in Christ, the second death, final judgment, holds no sway. So long as man lives, there's hope that he might reckon with death and become ready by trusting in Christ. And then live life wisely in light of that day. Again, as we've seen throughout Ecclesiastes, it's, if we just consider life under the sun, death just seems to void out so much of what is done and accomplished, so much of what is pursued. And so it's crucial that we be ready for that moment. And so long as one is living, there is hope. He contrasts that. He goes on and says, but the dead know nothing. Now, when Solomon speaks this way of the dead knowing nothing, and later he's going to go on and talk about there's no, no thought or wisdom in death and Sheol, 
It can seem like he's indicating or maybe saying that there's no afterlife. And yet, we've seen even last week, the logic of verse 12 of chapter 8 demands a reckoning after death. We've seen him speak of judgment to come, and he's going to do this as the book continues on, and as we get to the climax and conclusion of it. The key here is to once again remember that his perspective is a limited one. His perspective is from earth. He's saying that when a person dies, their earthly life is gone. Their body then gets laid in the ground. We all know this. We all understand this. And their tongues no more talk. Their brains no more think. They don't do anything. They lay in the ground and that's it. It's over. That's what he means when he says they know nothing. There's no more chance for them to return and now prepare for death. It's just over. Verse 6 makes it clear, I think, that this is what he means by this. This is what his perspective is when he says, Forever they, the dead, have no more share in all that is done under the sun. That's it. There's one life to live, and then when you die, it's over. No chance to go back and do it over again. That's what he's getting at. So there is hope for a living person. But once death comes, that's it. Everything's fixed at that point. Again, this is a crucial lesson from the book of Ecclesiastes. Death is inevitable at some point, and we must come to terms with that reality. Again, this is one of the ways that the book of Ecclesiastes just screams out for the gospel and prepares the way for it. All of this futility and death and all these efforts that come to nothing and you work so hard and then a fool inherits it and you try and the race is not to the swift, the, the, the swift and yet, yet you were fast and the intelligent, that doesn't necessarily work out all well for you. The, the wicked people often prosper and great righteous people, those who trust in the Lord often perish. It's not in fact right And this is precisely what prepares us for Christ. It is Christ who comes and puts an end to this futility. He is the eternal king over the eternal kingdom. Hebrews 2.15 tells us that the Son of God, Lord Jesus, came truly as truly man. He died so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus delivers from the fear of death. We need not fear it if we're in Christ. And so coming to terms with death... Finding refuge in Christ frees us to not live our lives in fear. To live our lives in faith. To live our lives on principle. And to accept that life under the sun is filled with many unknowns. It is often seemingly unfair. And that you and I are limited in our ability to do much of anything about it. Even though we might try. Even though our cause might be righteous and noble. It is not our job to make everything right. We can't. 
We live in an Ecclesiastes world. It is the Lord Jesus who will make things right, particularly at his return. We enter into his eternal kingdom now by faith in him. But when he returns, he will consummate that kingdom. He will put an end to all sin, all unrighteousness. He will judge his enemies and it will be righteousness eternally. That's Christ's job. We needn't fear death. We needn't fear what man could do to us. This is what the Lord Jesus himself told us. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Truly, truly, one day, all of this is going to end for every single one of us. And it is truly Christ alone who justifies. Trust him. Rest in his merits. For those in Christ, trusting him, though you die, Jesus says, yet shall you live. He assured that of Mark to Martha in John 11. So with those first two lessons taken to heart, we can, I think, more easily, perhaps, receive the last two. So the third lesson is you are free to enjoy life as God enables you. You are free to enjoy life as God enables you. Again, this also has been a continual theme in Ecclesiastes. Verse 7, go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Notice the proper response to the fact that we will all die one day. To the fact that circumstances often seem arbitrary, the appropriate response is not to just go around in sackcloth all the time and in constant misery with long faces and be continually depressed about that reality. Rather, he uses words like joy. He speaks of having a merry heart, of wearing white garments, of having oil on your head. All of these picture a joyful and even a celebratory existence. When he says, for God has already approved what you do, it doesn't mean that every single individual act you will ever do is always going to be upright and he's going to be very happy about everything and every thought you ever do. Rather, it means that these things that he is listing for you to do here are things that are already approved by God. God has already approved of work, of enjoying food, of a joyful existence. God favors these things. That is to say, you needn't feel bad about doing these things, of even enjoying these things, because they're approved matters by God. He has said this before, speaking of food and, and, and drink and work, but now he adds a category of the good gifts of God that he hasn't explicitly mentioned yet in Ecclesiastes. He says in verse 9, Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. And so hear, hear what this is telling you. It is good to pursue a joyful life with your spouse. 
This, is, this has the approval of God. Solomon doesn't elaborate on the steps of how exactly to make this a reality, how exactly to accomplish this. But it is a good thing. It is not something you should feel bad about. Just this week, I was talking to an older friend of mine. He's been married 30 years, and he's looking to take a step back from all that he's got going on in his life to just spend some time specifically to just enjoy being with his wife for a while and just enjoy her. And he said, and I don't feel guilty about it. I don't, I don't think you should feel guilty about it. And I don't think anyone should feel guilty about it. I don't think you should feel guilty about it. Building your marriage is a beautiful thing. It is a wonderful gift. It is a lawful pursuit as you live out whatever amount of days God gives you. Again, we we, we often, there's so many important things to do. There's so many important things going on. We've got work. We've got real responsibilities, other good things. But God also approves of enjoying meals, Enjoying your wife. Verse 10, he again commends work to us. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Work, as we have said before, is not a bad thing. Work was given to Adam even before the fall, even before sin. It was a good thing. What sin did was it corrupted work and made it a lot more miserable. Part of the curse was that the ground is now going to spring forth uh, weeds and thorns. It's going to make you sweat. But work itself is not a bad thing. It is a good thing. And here Solomon commends working at it with your might. working hard. The reason he gives is that you're eventually going to die and you won't be able to do this any longer. So while you're able, work at it. It's a good thing. Do it with your might. Work is not, contrary to popular opinion, work is not to be viewed as an obstacle to your joy. It is not to be viewed as an obstacle to you really living a good life. For many, it's just simply in the way of the weekend. I just got to get through it We complain our way through it until we can have the weekend and then it's me time. This is not how the Bible speaks of work. Work is painful. Work is often not overly satisfying. It is part of this, again, cursed world we live in. It's not because work itself is bad. Again, his reasoning for working hard is that you'll soon be dead. And he refers to Sheol, to where you are going. The word Sheol in the New Testament is, uh, in Greek, I guess, is Hades in the Septuagint and in the New Testament. It can sometimes be used to refer to a specific location, namely uh, hell, that is, the place for the wicked dead. Some places where it, it clearly takes on that meaning. Uh, But sometimes it is used simply to refer to the grave 
or abstractly to the state of death. Another way of just saying you're going to die one day. You're going down to the grave. Your body is going to lay in the grave. That's what he's saying here. That's all he's saying. There's coming a time when you won't be able to do any of work of your work because you're going to be dead. So do your work hard now while you can. And so all this is a reminder that you're free. It's good to enjoy your life. The things and the tasks that God has given to you. That you needn't feel guilty about this. Even though there are serious and weighty matters about you. It would be good to give attention to. We needn't run off after all of those things. And lose sight of these good gifts that God has given. At the same time as I introduced this point. Said you are free to enjoy life as God enables you. And so when we speak of enjoying all these good things in life, we also remember that it is not always that simple. The next verses remind us of this. Sometimes we are hindered from full enjoyment. Verse 11 Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Again, we're reminded of what Solomon says so often. So much is outside of your control that we may do everything right, get educated, be strong, Be swift, be intelligent, seek wisdom. Nevertheless, events outside of your control still come your way in this fallen world. Truly, truly, our lives are in the hand of God. When Solomon refers to time and chance, he's not denying God's sovereignty in this. But this is a description from the perspective of earth, that events from where we stand, appear to be very random. Someone's just at the wrong place at the wrong time. Or conversely, they just happen to be at the right place at the right time. As one commentator said, in the sea of life we are more truly the fish taken in an evil net or else unaccountably spared, then we are the masters of our fate and the captain of our souls. Part of life under the sun is enjoying the good things of life as God enables it. Also recognizing the hardship and evil time can come suddenly, though you do everything right. And so we're left to submit ourselves to the hand of God. We know this. Disease, accidents, they can make work, even something like eating, rather difficult. Tragedy can make sackcloth rather appropriate over a white garment. A wayward or harsh spouse can make enjoying marriage very difficult. Tragedies, difficulties really tax a marriage. We live with another sinner as well. So I would suggest that 
Solomon is revealing to us that we do our best to enjoy the good things in life that God has given us with the recognition that we still live in a fallen world and difficulty can come to us at any time. And if we remember the comforting reality of being in God's hands, if you're trusting in Christ, then I think we can accept this. We can be okay with this. If we don't idolize the idea of everything working out perfectly or just so, then we can be less rattled when we are providentially hindered from a full enjoyment of life. Finally, the final lesson from wisdom here is that wisdom is greater than might. Wisdom is greater than might. He again presents to us the benefits of wisdom. Verse 13, I have also seen this example of wisdom and the, uh, sorry, of wisdom, start that over. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. Again, the value of wisdom, but also the vanity of life. A poor but wise man delivers this small, insignificant city. Solomon says he saw this. This is a situation he was aware of. A great king with his forces lay siege to the city, and a poor, insignificant man delivers the city through wisdom. What a wonderful example of the value of wisdom. But even so, the poor wise man was soon after forgotten. This might leave us discouraged again, but Solomon adds in verse 16, but I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Though this wise man was forgotten, though we no longer have his rousing speech or his battle plan that got them out of it, Wisdom is still better than might. Wise words, even unheard or heard by just a few, taken to heart, are better than the loud shouts of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. I think there are times when it would be nice to have power, to have might, to be able to just even just go set a few things right. To make a few wrongs right. We often don't possess power, and those who do often abuse that power. But let us hear the words of Solomon and not despise what he has to say when he says, Wisdom is better than might. We may not have power, but we can grow in wisdom, this precious commodity of wisdom. So let us give ourselves to prayer and to the word of God that we might grow in wisdom. Not opining our lack of power to change everything around us. So life is often vexing. Ecclesiastes is affirming this. It, 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 he, as we said earlier, Solomon keeps our nose in it, doesn't let us look up too quickly. He keeps reminding us awkwardly of this. Uh, 
But it is also pointing us away from folly and and that which will increase our frustration and pointing us toward wisdom. So let us trust the word of God in these matters. Scripture is a sure guide. We are called to live this life in light of eternity by being clothed in the righteousness of Christ by faith, thereby being ready for death. You're called to enjoy the good gifts of God in this life as he enables us in his providence, seeking his wisdom even more than we would seek earthly power or influence. God is good. He will not fail you. His word is true. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the world we inhabit is as you say. It is fallen. There is much that is beyond our ultimate understanding. We, we don't begin to claim anywhere near a full understanding of the way that you work in the world. Your ways are so often beyond us. You, almighty, all-powerful, sovereign God, and yet so much from our perspective is, is just beyond us. We don't understand. And yet, God, you are completely other than anything else we could lay eyes on and we can conceive of. You are greater. You are eternal. Father, help us to, to just bow our knees before you where we are perplexed, where we are frustrated by life where we face real challenges and difficulties. Father, help us to, as we have opportunity, do good to others, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Father, help us to be able to receive what comes our way with content and thankful hearts. Father, help us look not to look not just to our circumstances, but ultimately to your word to determine whether our actions are right or wrong. Father, I pray that we would have great confidence that it is through faith in Christ that we stand justified before you. That whatever comes our way it would indeed be well with our souls. Father, help us to truly, truly, Be prepared for the day you call us home. That we would truly live out our time and our days with eyes of faith. I pray that you would give us confidence in your goodness. Father, we pray for mercy on our nation. We pray that your word would go forth, your gospel would be proclaimed and believed, that many would indeed escape the fear of death by trusting in Christ. Father, we thank you so much for your your mercy. We thank you so much for the salvation that you have accomplished through sending your son. In Jesus' name, amen.